Hey, this is John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and I just have one really quick thing to say about this episode. We record a lot of our podcasts remotely, and given everything that's going on right now, we're recording all of them remotely. That means we're really reliant on technology. As I think most of you can appreciate, technology doesn't always cooperate, and we had some pretty severe audio issues with this episode. We did a lot of work to improve it. Editing a podcast is already quite a bit of work, but John Spencer, the host of the podcast, spent many more hours than he would normally have to working on it, and trust me, it is much, much better. There are still some parts where it isn't perfect, but the subject matter in the episode is so good that I hope you'll bear with us. Thanks and enjoy the episode. You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Colonel Michael Simmering, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Stedman, and Lieutenant Colonel Neil Myers. Colonel Simmering, Colonel Stedman, and Colonel Myers, thank you so much for taking time out of your, what I know is always busy schedule there at the National Training Center to join me. Just as a quick background for our listeners, could each of you give us your position and general duty at the National Training Center? Yeah, so uh, first off, my name is Colonel Mike Simmering. I'm the commander of operations group here at the National Training Center, commonly referred to as the COG. I'm really responsible for the overall design of rotations and meeting the training objectives set forth by the senior trainers. So whether it involves the OP4 the rotational unit or ops group, we're, we're sort of the ones who weave everything together to help train the Army. And uh, this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Stedman. I uh, have the fortunate opportunity to serve as Bronco 07, which is the brigade trainer team. So I oversee the observer controller trainers who are in charge of uh, watching, coaching, and mentoring the brigade staff across all warfighting functions as they go through the rotation here. Okay, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Neil Myers. I serve as uh, Tarantula 07. I'm covered down the Light Infantry Task Forces out here, uh, generally uh, covered down the combined arms battalions that are uh, infantry heavy. Since we do have military and non-military listeners on the show, I wonder if we could, and it's kind of funny to ask this, but start with some very basic background on the National Training Center. Of course, I know what it is and have had the wonderful opportunities to be there as both a rotating force and as an augmented TOC and recently as a guest to watch the awesome attack of Regis operation. But I wonder if we could just do some basic background information on what it is. So what is NTC? Yeah, so uh, no problem. The, uh, the National Training Center was initially founded uh, in 1982. Before that, it was obviously Fort Irwin. It was a guard post that we had other units stationed here. But really, it is one of the largest training centers within the United States Army that is responsible for bringing Army units in the brigade size or below, primarily, here to the National Training Center that we can train them in their large-scale combat operations task to be executed in a decisive action environment. Really, normally, NTC rotation occurs towards the end of a collective training progression for a unit. And as they come through here, they will experience 14 days of continuous contact with the enemy, the environment, and everything they're trying to do themselves as well. It's really the largest force-on-force training scenario that you'll see in the United States Army. And generally, how many brigades do you see come through NTC a year? So in a normal year, uh, we plan for 10 rotations a year. On uh, surge years, we can go up to 11. So we can really accommodate to the needs of the Army whenever we need to. So I know this has changed over the years where the National Training Center also served as a mission readiness exercise, the final check on training before deploying into to a combat environment. That's no longer the case, or is it both? No. So the mission readiness exercises that the U.S. Army used to execute during the counterinsurgency era, whether you look at somewhere around the, the years from about 2003 to 2012, we really gravitated away from those starting at about 2013, 2014, as the Army reoriented on large-scale combat operations. So everybody that comes to a CTC, whether you're going to JRTC in Fort Polk, Louisiana, or you're going to JMRC in Hohenfels, Germany, or coming here to the National Training Center, you train against a high-end near-peer threat under the vein of large-scale combat operations. 
And really what we try to do is we try to make sure that we're meeting the training objectives of the senior trainer for that rotation. Usually that is the division commander who is, we have worked with for months prior to help scope his training objectives, the way that he sees the rotation going and help set things up in a manner that he thinks will best help best train his forces for their future missions. Yes, sir. That's really helpful. So as part of the shift to the decisive action training environment, NTC shifted away from focusing on counterinsurgency and more towards near peer competition. Is that right? That's absolutely true. So we train against what we call a near peer threat that is augmented with hybrid forces in terms of what we might see in any other place in the world. We call them proxy forces. Whether you're looking at the Middle East, you're looking at Europe, or quite honestly, you could be looking over the Pacific. It's the flavor of that that they get every CTC rotation. And as for basically replication of a combat environment, what are the general battle simulations that are involved? Everything from miles or what a civilian might call laser tag to civilian role players. And what's the spectrum of capabilities you have as a training environment? It's really hard to list that in a succinct statement. The bottom line is the U.S. Army throws together every resource it has here at the combat training centers in order to provide the best replicated combat training environment for Army units. So we have peer threats that have equipment comparable to ours that we obviously will go up against that represent conventional forces. We have civilians on the battlefield that represent the myriad of complex cultural problems that you may run into during a deployment. We have proxy forces that, quite honestly, they're much more well-equipped than the insurgents uh, of 2005 that we might have saw in Iraq or Afghanistan. They bring tech with them, and they're much more sophisticated than they used to be. They're trained to operate really multiple capabilities, whether it's anti-tank threats, electronic warfare capabilities, UAS capabilities, not to mention what you'd normally see in terms of dismounted operations. But the type of environment that we try to put together here at the National Training Center, quite honestly, can be captured with the best replicated combat training that you'll ever see short of real combat. And the whole goal is to ensure that no soldier goes unprepared into war. Yes, sir. And I will say, and I'm not just being nice. I've kind of traveled the world and seen multiple Army training sites. And the National Training Center, by far, in my opinion, is the world's best training for any military for multiple reasons. And quite honestly, what we're doing is we're adding capability all the time. Whether you look at cyber threats, whether you look at air threats, whether you look at, a, at the you know conditions of the battlefield that we might see in the future in terms of not being in a theater where we necessarily have air superiority, all those are the type of things we look at. So if you imagine the worst possible future conflict, that's the high end that we train our forces for. So actually, I, I want to talk about combat environments of course, the National Training Center is in the high desert, but this is an urban warfare podcast, and I'm more interested in really what type of urban training opportunities or environments are available at the National Training Center. Yeah, so thanks for asking. So you know, when you drive through Mojave Desert, you, you don't think complex urban terrain. That's not what I thought the first time I drove to the National Training Center. But actually, we've got about nine different urban sites throughout the training area from one end of the area to the other. And when you look at them, it's some of the more complex urban terrain that can be offered at any Army installation. In particular, the uh, the city of Rajesh is now up to about 600 buildings total. And since you were last out here, John, we've actually added on to that over time. We put in a little more structure and we've sort of moved forward on continuously improving the urban areas here at the National Training Center. I'm going to ask a bunch of details about Rajesh since we're going to talk about that in detail, but would you call these basically mock cities in the desert? Absolutely. These are all cities that 20 years ago, none of these sites existed. Uh, they were initially constructed to help prepare our soldiers during the mission rehearsal exercises that we used to do here during the coin era as we prepared units for Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but quite honestly, what we found is as we look forward into the future, when we look towards where future wars or conflicts are likely to, what areas they're likely to go into, you know, we, we really kept those urban training areas from the MRE era 
and we're continuing to invest in them and continue to try to make them more complex, commensurate with what you might see in, in a real-life environment. Yes, I think I knew that. Basically, they started off as trying to replicate cities and villages in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they've morphed over time. So let's talk about Rajesh specifically. So it's about 600 structures. What's the average height? Do you have any skyscrapers? How big of a city are we talking about? So Rajesh in particular is about 600 buildings, um, and it varies in, in size from you know, about 16 three- to five-story buildings that are throughout the area. And then you have numerous one-story structures. Some of it's tied together in a more complicated fashion to replicate what you might see for dense uh, dense terrain, such as you know, whether you're looking towards Mosul and the complicated area that you might see in old Mosul City, you're looking towards Talifar, other areas like that. And then some of it is actually arranged in a, in a more open fashion commensurate with what you might see in a European area. So really what we've done with Rajesh over time is we sort of blended together different types of urban environments to create training opportunities for different units as they go forward based upon what their likely future mission set is. So I've seen a couple of plans for you know, continued expansion of Rajesh going back to even before General Milley as the CSA was interested in building a what he called a megacities type of training environment. What size of unit can you realistically train within Rajesh? You can train up to a brigade size unit, a dismounted brigade unit. And we have the ability here based upon the great work we do with the Black Horse, who is the opposing force here at the National Training Center, to upscale or downscale what enemy forces we replicate based upon the capabilities of the training unit that's come, that comes in here. But we honestly can challenge on a pretty continuous basis up to a brigade combat team. Nice. How long are they spending on the operation involving the city of Rajesh? So if you take into account the time it goes to set the conditions just to move into and clear the city of Rajesh, it overall ends up being about a three-day operation just because of the train around it, the ability to isolate it, and all the effort that goes into properly planning, preparing, and for rehearsing that type of a complex operation. The actual execution of it, based upon how the unit's doing, we can have that go as long as a day. It can go down to a morning. It really depends on the size of the unit coming into the National Training Center, and then also really what their training objectives are, their focus. Some units are more urban-focused than others just because they have a different set of capabilities. Yes, sir. So what's the, let's say, average situation that's given to a rotating unit and the mission they're asked to accomplish within the city of Rajesh? So the bottom line is they have to clear enemy forces out of the city. And it's really probably one of the culminating urban operations that a unit will do during a rotation. It's definitely probably one of the more difficult. With the condition setting that goes in ahead of it, they really have to put a lot of effort into making sure that they have done everything ahead of time to successfully put soldiers on the ground in the city and set the conditions for success. But what they'll normally do is there's a series of urban objectives prior to that that are smaller in size that sort of help train the unit commensurate with its capability and sort of get them ready for the bigger city of Rajesh. Hey, John, this is uh, Drew Stedman. I'll jump on that point for a second. One lesson that units come to understand out here is that while Rajesh is an impressive objective with hundreds of buildings and takes up a, a significant portion of combat power, it is not an isolated feature. There is key terrain that surrounds Rajesh and units really need to come to understand the Rajesh objective as integrated into that key terrain. And that terrain has got to become some of what the COG said just now, which is condition setting. There's a ramp up. There is that preparation for the Rajesh fight, which involves controlling the city from different sides and eliminating weapon systems so that you can actually get to the city. So thinking of it as just a, an urban terrain feature isolated from its surroundings is one uh, kind of a, a faulty thinking that uh, some units can get into. Hey, John, it's Neil. 
I was just going to elaborate on what Colonel Simmering mentioned earlier about the air threat here at the National Training Center. So we're talking about the horizontal fight right now. But uh, when we get in and around the city of Razish, we also incorporate here at the National Training Center uh, an air threat via rotary wing. We also have fixed wing air that comes in and gives the unit on the ground additional problems that's to have to deal with. And most recently, Black Horse Elements have incorporated quadcopters to their attack planning. And so they have the ability to replicate that as kind of the threat forces we're seeing downrange right now to give them that different look. So they're not just looking at the building in front of them or the building beyond them. They also have to provide that air cover as well. No, I do remember that actually. And to my delight, standing and watching the start of the operation and seeing enemy drone swarms show up as the unit approached the actual city. But I also love the fact that units have to think about a piece of urban terrain is not just the city, but there is no city in the world that is a single organism that doesn't have a what we call a peri-urban cities and villages that are significant, whether it's the workers that go to that city or that flow the resources in there. So that's amazing that we have that amount of terrain to be able to replicate that key terrain, not just, you know, a hilltop, but this city is important to that city or, you know, this peri-urban space is important to the operation um, that we're about to conduct. John, I think one important point to add as well is we have a fallacy that I, I think we're at a tipping point in the, in the Army at this point where we're sort of getting over it, where the mentality used to be if we didn't like how Rajesh was going to play out or we didn't like any of the other urban areas, there was a mentality that we could just go around it and we could just bypass it. And the bottom line is, is if you look at how the National Training Center has positioned our urban areas throughout the terrain, and then you look at the capabilities that the enemy forces have, going around is not an option anymore. Units are forced to deal with this type of terrain no matter what. And it's something that our units are starting to realize as we move forward. Yes, sir. That's music to my ears as the urban warfare guy. Avoid and bypass used to be literally written into doctrine, enter the city at the last, last resort. So it's very interesting that in our culminating exercise now that we don't give units a choice, even in the interpretation of the mission, they're entering the city. And from what I remember, the Rashish is a, it's basically a non-permissive environment. It's been completely seized by the enemy to even seated on the outskirts of it with mind wire obstacles. Is that, is that right? That's absolutely true. So we replicate that the city has been seized much like you see ISIS seizing control of key areas in you know Eastern Syria. You look at other areas, the bottom line is you're not going into a permissive environment. And in, in fact, you're not going into an ambiguous environment at all. You know, it's going to be a fight from the minute you get within direct fire range. Yes, sir. So if you don't mind, I'd like to transition to, you know, the mission has been given to the unit. They've started their planning, MDMP, their planning process. And what are you looking for? Really all three of you, because I know that you're each looking at something different in an operation such as a basically liberate the city of Rajesh or clear it, seize it. So quite honestly, one of the things that I am, I am looking for is the patience and the ability of a unit to set the conditions, which is something that we find that units struggle with on a routine basis. Understanding that you have to build a picture and you have to understand what's in front of you before you just rush headlong into a lethal environment like that. And then secondly, I'd really point to their ability to synchronize what we call the war fighting functions or combine arms down to the lowest levels so that they're not throwing just infantrymen that are dismounts against dismounts in the city, that we combine our capabilities at echelon to make sure that we can piecemeal this enemy and take him apart one piece at a time. I think Drew and uh, Neil here can offer further insights to some things they look at. Uh, yes, sir, for sure. And the condition setting and synchronization is something that happens at the, the leader level and between commanders, but also happens in the in the staff level as well. You know, we've got the, again, the Bronco team is covering down on the brigade staff. And so as a unit plans and then prepares to execute the fight in Razish, we're watching how the key products come together. What does their synchronization matrix look like? What does their collection plan look like? And when does it start? A unit knows several days ahead that they're going to go into Razish, let's say on training day six. And so when do they start asking what's going on in Razish? When do they start applying fires to Razish and the surrounding key terrain? 
so we help them see that they should have fights early, that they should shape with the assets that they have and assets from hire, and that they should collect information so that it'll make their fight a little bit easier when they get there. And then we see all that come together through products and then onto the rehearsal. And that's one of the things we look at. So when the battalions come up, uh, typically the day before for the combined arms rehearsal, what's the depth of understanding that the leaders have in the plan? Are they talking in generalities or specific condition setting? Do they understand that what must happen, that engineers must be in place before we initiate the SOSRA drill for the combined arms breach? Are the Apaches on station to and oriented to fight the deep fight, for example? And so all these things kind of have to be in place, and it's the staff that ends up creating the products that put those timings and those assets into play. Yeah, so this is uh, Colonel Myers. So one of the challenges is that we're giving them this mission set while they're currently in contact with the enemy. So what we're looking at is their planning processes, not just necessarily in the fight they're in, but the fight they're about to be in. And you heard Drew list off several things that have to do with synchronizing assets at the brigade level. We look for at the battalion level, obviously, is synchronizing down to our level too. Communication's one thing that's key. You know, the commanders get on the map at the combined arms rehearsal at the brigade level. And what we often see is that the communication ceases at, at that point. No unit can succeed in Razish alone. You heard the engineers are in there in support of the combined arms breach. We have rogueing assets. We have artillery. We highly encourage and what we look at to give feedback to the units that come through is, are they doing that adjacent unit coordination? Are they talking to their left and their right to find out what the battalion to the right of them is doing or the battalion to the left of them is doing? Because this is really a joint effort to get into Razish itself and owning the terrain, as we talked about earlier, in and around it is one of those conditions that must be set to allow the attack Razish to even happen in the first place. But once the, the operation kicks off, we look pretty heavily at the synchronization from battalion to battalion, left and right, and the adjacent units. Yeah, just to sort of add something to that, John, you know, and Neil kind of hit on it here, but the ability of a unit to plan, prepare, and execute <laughs> operations simultaneously. What we put the units through here at the National Training Center, whether it's an urban fight or whether it's other fights that may happen out here, you are in continuous contact from day one. So it's not set up, and we purposely don't replicate it as what we might consider lane training, where you get a mission, then you go through a set rehearsal period, you prepare your forces, then you go execute it, and then we stop afterwards. You're constantly fighting for every piece of terrain as you go forward. And once you get into the city, you're fighting literally from building to building. At the same time, you're preparing for the next operation. You're planning the operation after that. It's a complex environment that the units have to deal with here. Yes, sir. And I definitely feel that. And that's actually one of my questions is, I mean, this would be a complex operation for the best of units. And I know that this is a training event. It's a learning event. And this is under a condensed timeline, not to say that wouldn't happen in a large scale combat operation, but some of the most recent major battles that we're, you're talking about, the city attack, usually takes months to plan or, or has happened with months of planning. What are the units, even successful units, what do they have available to, to help them plan for such a complex operation, whether it's doctrine or you know, their own staff SOPs? What do you think is available to say, here's the mission with this city and here's some resources that, that you sh think they should have already seen at home station training or maybe readily available for them to, to look at while they're planning? I think one of the most valuable things that a unit gets is what we call the leader training program here at the National Training Center, where we bring units out months before a rotation, and we try to orient them to the train. We try and show them the complexity of operations that they'll have to execute upon arrival, and then help structure their home station training in a way that helps them achieve that level of proficiency upon arrival. In our mind, we already deal with the best army in the world. So the units that show up, they're capable of handling a little more complexity. But the fact is, is we'll ramp it up until we have pushed them to the very edge. So I think Drew has something to add here as well. Yes, sir. So, John, as you know, NTC has been around for a long time and units have been preparing year after year for what really becomes a Super Bowl event and, and the culmination of a long home station training process and to prepare for it. And so along the way comes uh, handed down lessons and products that cycle through the Army, you know, in and out of the, the doctrine centers and from unit to unit and leader to leader. And also what you find there is a, a good host of products that the NTC offers to inform them of what the environment looks like. So they understand how many buildings are in Razish. They know the ethnic layout of the different parts 
of the town. They understand who the leaders are. We've got baseball cards and all those. So they can start to understand the environment long before they get here and can actually, the smart units will do, they'll do professional development sessions. They will do rehearsals. They will do command post exercises that are centered around the fights they will have here at NTC. And so you can fight Razish every month uh, for the year before you come to NTC if you want. All the products are there for that. The terrain is there, the GRGs, it's all readily available. Uh, and then finally, one thing that done here in the last year at NTC is to structure a core level plan that provides a more detailed framework for the brigades that arrive. I think what brigades have is a more tangible understanding of what is to their left and right and with a lot more maneuver room on the battle space around them. And so it brings a little bit more uh, reality and a little bit depth to the battlefield so that there are effects out there that they can feel and will really be part of their operating environment. Hey, John, this is Neil. To add to what Drew said, so the beauty of it for a rotational unit coming through here is the city of Razish does not change other than adding more buildings. They have the ability to pull imagery off of that now back with their S2 cells and conduct those tactical decision exercises or those you know, fighting on the tabletops back in a conference room and doing a lot of the MDMP and co-ed development at the staff level at home station in preparation for coming here. So they're obviously going to be in a time-constrained environment, and time is something that we never have enough of here at the National Training Center. And that's intentional to push that rotational unit to the far end of the spectrum where they're, you know, really stressed out. Looking at unit SOPs, a lot of that stuff we take a look at here and how they're utilizing their stuff. But one of the biggest outputs in the planning process is common operating graphics at the brigade level. When you get inside the 600 building structure of Razish itself, if you're not all talking the same naming convention, the same phase lines, and you have multiple battalions operating in and around the city, it gets confusing in a hurry. So that's one of the biggest outputs that we see units that have the most success here is that common operating graphics. Yes, sir. Colonel Seven, when I was there, I asked a question and... It's not a loaded question. I've actually asked the head of doctrine directorate at, at the Combined Arms Center, Colonel Rich Creed, looking at urban warfare doctrine or urban operation doctrine, whether it's the base documents or the training circulars, do you as observers of brigade level attacks on urban terrain believe that the doctrine is adequate to prepare for this operation? So I'll go first on that one. I think that in the past, it has been a weakness of the Army. I think as the Army put out its multi-domain operations concept, you saw, if you look back in like the, in the annexes that were in that, urban operations were specifically accounted for. And then this past summer, you saw the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth come out with a whole new series of doctrine that they published beginning on, I think it was 31 July 2019, that began to take that stuff into account better. Now, this was just the overall framework for operations, and I know that moving forward, there's Army training publications that are in the works now to help refine and get at that. But the Army... I think it's doing a good job realizing this is something we're going to have to deal with in the future and that we need to get our doctrine straight moving forward. And I think there's folks concentrating on that now. Hey, John, this is Colonel Stebbin. I'll jump on that in one aspect that's kind of at the ground level. So units come here and they come to several insights that they might not have gotten during their home station maltraining or you know urban training. One of those is the number of casualties that an urban objective will produce. You see many first sergeants standing in the CCP surrounded by dozens of bodies and soldiers, KA, WIA, and no way to move them, no way to treat them with the number of medics that they have on the ground. And so you start to come to the realization after a rotation here that maybe it's not the best course of action anymore to send an 18-year-old in face first into a room as your first course of action. And so I think we are seeing a mentality shift to where commanders and senior NCOs and those planning these operations have the responsibility to figure out every way we can to achieve the commander's intent on an urban objective before we send a soldier through a door. We should have applied every domain and every asset that we have to that objective before we put that soldier in the line of fire in the fatal funnel, because that is perhaps the most risky place to be on a battlefield, and we owe it to them to do more than just send them in. So, John, Battle Drill 6 that we look at training most of the infantry soldiers coming through here, entering and clear a room, is really the easy part of all this. And you're talking about urban operations. But one thing that's going to allow a unit to be successful is planning before you get into the city. There's a whole fight outside of the city that needs to occur to allow your unit to even get in to kick that first door down like Drew was talking about. But if your engineers and your artillery is not set the conditions appropriately, you're never even going to make it into the city. So you might potentially have one battalion that'll culminate prior to even getting in 
to that foothold in Razish to allow the 2nd Battalion to pass through. So like Drew said, the, the amount of casualties that we generally see in and around Razish is very high due to some of the lack of planning by units that come through to win that first fight before even getting into the urban center itself. Yeah. I mean, that hits home. So do you think that that force ratio that Urban Doctrine recommends really comes to bear? Colonel Simmering, this is a brigade objective, but as when I was there and talking about isolation and shaping operations, you can quickly get beyond a brigade level operation. That force ratio aspect really comes into play to me, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. No, I absolutely think it does. I mean, when you look, for example, on the rotation, we may put 25 fighters in a city, we may put 100, we may put more, but when you look at the ratio of forces it takes to clear the city of all enemy, it does end up being higher than the standard 3 to 1 ratio that you normally see units plan against, for example, conducting an attack against a simple platoon in open terrain. Force ratios are much different in an urban environment. John, so what we generally see going into Razish is a well-emplaced Black Horse Platoon can do a huge amount of damage to an infantry battalion getting in and around the city. It can almost culminate the infantry battalion with just one enemy platoon. So you're looking at throwing a battalion against a platoon in an urban environment that's structured like Razish with an enemy that knows that structure inside and out. It's a huge fight and a huge concern for the ratio going forward. You know, I don't like seeing people fail, but just as you know, somebody who studied urban warfare and especially those first few battles when complete companies will be decimated within minutes by 10 highly motivated fighters set up in a complex ambush. And you probably see it 10 times a year, that awakening in complex urban terrain. You mentioned imagery and understanding the terrain beforehand, but I know that there is no empty city in the world. Even when in major battles where we've tried to empty populations out of cities, it never works. There's always populations in these cities no matter how much we will try to empty them out, how are civilian populations represented in the city? Because you're not asking the unit just to clear enemy out. You're asking them to clear enemy from within a, at least semi-populated urban environment, correct? That's true. So the way Rajesh is normally painted, there's three different factions that we represent. You have a a pro-enemy population that's on one hand. You have a anti-enemy population on the other hand. And then quite honestly, you have a a population that's on the fence. With regards to beforehand, there's a chance to do some information operations and things like that where you can possibly affect enemy force ratios in the city by engaging and winning over the neutral population to your side, for example. But it's an extremely complex problem set that you have to deal with in here. Going back to one point, you made the point, you know, nobody likes to see units fail. Bottom line is urban operations are just hard. The fact is we will conduct retraining on urban objectives based upon their demonstrated level of proficiency. Quite honestly, if it's a black horse platoon, you know, an enemy platoon that happened to take out the better portion of the battalion, we'll basically back things up because what we want to make sure of at the end of the day that is that our soldiers leave here properly trained and not that we push them through a city just so that we can say we've done it. At the end of the day, we're in this to win. So we'll be retraining. We don't have any problem with that here at the National Training Center. So, John, it's important to note, too, based on the the structural design of the exercise itself, the rotational design, if you will. Razish generally isn't the first urban area that the brigade is going to face. Depending if you're going east to west, you might run into Barisu, which is a smaller urban terrain. If you go west to east, the city of Ujin that lies outside of Razish. So generally, the brigade has a shot before going into Razish to refine their processes and make sure that they got all the products on hand that they're going to need to be successful in the city of Razish. So, you know, a failure in Barisu going into Razish and a failing in, in Razish itself proper, through failure, we're still learning lessons and the rotational units are still learning through their failure. We've seen units progress from day one, training day one to training day 14. It's a complete 180 by a unit from where they started by where they exit the rotation. Yeah, no, I, I definitely get that. And there would be some people to argue that there is no learning unless there's adequate feedback. And I know that NTC provides a lot of that feedback. So let's get into execution. What are the things in execution? So basically, you know, D-Day or N-Hour, you know, whatever it is, when the operation actually begins, what are you looking for? So I'll go with that first. You know, so everybody lays out we call the best laid plans of everything we need to do before we get there. And then all of a sudden, 
time to cross the line of departure comes. And then normally what you'll see is units, they have done a great job at trying to understand what conditions need established beforehand, but then all of a sudden you have critical ones that fail. And the unit in the process of execution does not adapt their plan accordingly. We tell everybody here at the National Training Centers, you have two types of plans. You have ones that won't work and ones that might work. The ones that might work, quite honestly, come down to how well you do things during the process of execution. So simple things from the lowest level to the highest level, whether it's failure to check a breaching asset to make sure that it is properly loaded and it is prepared to breach an obstacle going into the city, that might be an operator level error, to failing to properly in place a retrans so that you lose communication with the force primarily responsible for isolating the city. Those type of things that we just we forget because we get so caught up in the heat of battle, we'll find those critical moments in each battle out here where they happen and the good units are able to adjust fire the other units that struggle the bottom line is they will continue to go because quite honestly it's time to go and then we go from there drew or neil you have anything to add to that hey john colonel steadman here yeah the timing of execution ends up being another tough lesson because generally everything takes about five times as long as you think it's going to take and so what you see is that Units will start moving toward the objective at 0300, run into friction, which is inevitable. And it's built into the problem set. It's just the nature of operations. And so it will take longer to get to to their in route objectives. It'll take longer to set the conditions. And before you know it, it's daylight. And now we're uh, initiating the combined arms breach in full view of the enemy when we really wanted to do it or should have done it at night. So timing is certainly one you need to start earlier than you think you do. And the other one is kind of a corollary to that, which is looking at a problem set like Razish as a discrete objective, as in we're hitting it at daylight. So the Razish operation doesn't start until X time, when in reality, it kind of goes back to what we talked about before with condition setting. You have to have fights to get to the big fight. And so, for example, there's a couple key pieces of terrain, again, around Razish that you you have to own because if the enemy owns it, they're going to affect you all the way in and they're going to complicate your operation or stall it completely. And so you have to have those fights early. So Razish is not in and of itself. So you have to start fighting the Razish fight two days prior. And so that discrete objective thinking is something that commanders have to get away from and understand that they're in a constant fight. It's not a boxing match. It is a street fight and where you are punching and kicking in multiple directions and you're fighting well outside of your kind of temporal comfort zone. So, John, so what we generally see, we'll go beyond the breach and moving in to gain the foothold in the city itself properly. So what we generally see is a battalion will come up with a plan. The companies will come up with a plan. It's well rehearsed at the rehearsal. We're going to move from building one to two to three, right? We all know the enemy gets a vote. So good units execute according to their plan. The difference between good units and great units is the great units, they demonstrate flexibility and adaptability on the ground. So one, two, three buildings might not make sense because the enemy's sitting in some of them. So I'm going to go one, four, five. But the ability to, to adapt on the ground and fight the enemy that you're fighting, not the one you plan to fight, is where we see the great units succeed here. Looking from an OC perspective on the ground, we're not looking at Battle Drill 6, how you're entering and clearing the room. We're looking at urban operations itself writ large, how you're maneuvering in and around the urban area. Are you controlling your forces? Do you know where first squad, second platoon's at? And more importantly, is that information making it back to the battalion tack who's fighting the fight from outside Razish? And then on top of that, the battalion talk that's probably two terrain features back, do they have the same common operating picture? Because generally one of those two mission command nodes is talking back to the brigade and helping paint that picture of where forces are at. And what we generally see is that more often than not, forces, once they in, enter Razish itself, and it turns into the fight that Drew just described, the kicking and fighting in the streets, we lose situational awareness of where our forces are at. Uh, and that's where we see units culminate. I couldn't agree more. And actually, when I get, I get a lot of requests for recommendations on urban training, despite limitations of home unit station or availability of training sites. And I tell them that you don't need all of that. If you want to train just your ability to, to communicate and maneuver through urban space and to maintain that situational awareness, you, you can do that without a major training site. And that becomes significantly complex for especially tactical level units, all the way up to levels that you see of how do you understand what's going on and complexity of this environment really brings out how important those things are. 
Right. And so to add to that, when I talked about earlier is the communications piece. So do we have enough radios down to the squad level to communicate in and around the city? And oh, by the way, on top of it, you heard the electronic warfare that attacks out here too. Maybe we're jamming a certain line of communication that we can't talk. So, you know, that exacerbates the problem on the ground when you can't talk to your elements that are in and around fighting in the city. For sure. One thing that I actually got to observe was the combined arms breach based on timing, like Colonel Sedman said. Do you guys think that we have enough capabilities to conduct a combined arms breach into dense urban terrain, whether it's the steps of Sursa and how you obscure, we're relying on night operations or we're relying on smoke operations. Do we have enough smoke capabilities or smoke, let's say, proficiency in smoke operations? I think that's one that continually comes out to me because of how important it is to close with the enemy. And if he can see you a mile away, he'll start engaging you a mile away. Is that stuff that you guys see in the attack of Rajesh? It is. And, you know, with regards to do we have enough capability, you know, the bottom line is every rotation out here is about 5,000 soldiers and pretty much every capability that the Army uh, provides to a brigade combat team. The capabilities there, the, the challenge they get into is the ability to employ it and to mass effects at the decisive point on the battlefield. So, a lot of people will ask us, you know, here at the National Training Center is, well, why, why do we, why are we looking at breaching operations? Um, why do we have to breach so much? Well, the fact of the matter is, is one, you're going to enter a contested environment. So we don't want to fight a home game here. So we're looking to fight, you know, an away game. So the bottom line is when you look at it, we're not going to go into a friendly area. And if you look at a2D2 theory, when you look at you know land warfare, they're going to put obstacles out there. They're not just going to let us roam around wherever we want. But our ability to mask those effects at a particular point is where units can, will continually struggle. The better units can bring it together and get all those assets synchronized in order to get through a breaching operation fairly quickly. And when you talk about, you know, on a scale of we're going to create a breach and we're going to pass upwards of 1,600 soldiers through two, three lanes, whatever it may be, in a period of an hour, that seems like a monumental task. It's hard to do it under fire, but the fact is, is we've seen units do it and it can be done. John, uh, if you could think of the breach in, in this perspective, planning to do it is the science. It's easy to plan it. We know what we're supposed to do. We know the doctrine executing the breach is more of the art uh, and synchronizing all those assets, like like Colonel Simmering said, at the decisive point, at the decisive time, to allow that infantry battalion to get through the breach, to get even in, to get the foothold. So you have to combine the science and the art to make it successful. So here's one aspect, and Colonel Miles, you talked about it, especially since you're looking at some of the close fight aspects of it. Um, and I'm going to push you a little bit. Just based on even one of my most recent guests uh, did, a P, DAP, did a PhD um, on analyzing whether the combat or the urban environment is the great equalizer. Because that's one of the theories of urban warfare is that you know, these dense urban environments equalize the playing field. And Colonel Simmering said early on that we show them that that's not true because we're the best army in the world with these capabilities. Um, despite that kind of popular media presentation um the combat the urban environment is not the great equalizer it doesn't negate all capabilities that can be brought to bear but in let's say six case studies of recent battles the battle of fallujah the battle of Aachen, um, you know down down to it one thing that continually comes forward is is adaptability in soldiers and the adaptability of especially close the close fight and let's say inner and clear room, how that battle drill six, which seems to be something that is easier to focus on for training, but we're showing you that there, there's much more complexity to whether it's urban maneuver, obstacle reduction, you know, casualty evacuation battle drill six is kind of like a core thing. If you ask somebody, if they're doing urban operations, but historical analysis will show you that battle drill six quickly becomes uh, not, I won't say not important, but it, it changes to where they, they stop stacking on doors based on enemy strong points within buildings 
and number of casualties. And they start um, developing on the spot TTPs of identifying enemy strong point, backing up, calling for either the mobile protective firepower tank Bradley or calling for fire on the enemy strong point once they've isolated. Um, how does Regis allow a unit to kind of experience that of that transition from battle drill six high casualty rates, other tactics that have been shown in history to be successful? Yeah, so that's a great question, first of all. So when I say that when we get into the foothold uh, of Razish itself, that's probably the last time our OCTs are seeing any anything that looks or resembles a Battle Drill 6. Uh, beyond the foothold, it turns into uncontrolled maneuver throughout the city. And that's where we take a look at operating in the urban terrain. You know, it's up to that squad leader at some point or that platoon leader to decide if he's culminated at a certain building and he needs to call back uh, to the company commander to push additional forces through. So the, the calling in for fire into Rizish itself, I have yet to see a unit do that out here. What we generally see is units that continue to push and expand their resources and they get to the point where it's too late and they've culminated and they've left a trail of casualties behind them. So that's one of the, the things that I could offer up to, to rotational units that come through here is you have to worry about establishing those casualty collection points. Uh, we addressed it earlier, but it's generally an afterthought as, as they culminate uh, in and around the city. But yeah, we, we have rarely seen what you just described as getting into the city, establishing that, that foothold, moving to the next building and setting the conditions to move on. And, and I'm not I'm not certain if it's just a lack of home station training or if it's the way that the, the, the Black Horse Helmet's fighting it out here. But I think people get sucked into there's somebody shooting. I got to go get them. Um, that's kind of the mentality we see out here. But uh, we try to control it at the OC perspective uh, and, and encourage the fight to, to continue uh, along the lines of urban operations versus just the running down streets and, and getting after it Call of Duty style. So the only thing I'd add, I absolutely agree with, with what Neil said. But I just sort of hit on your point is one of the TTPs that I would like to see out here more often is the notion of combined arms at, at the lowest level. Um, because we talked to combined arms at the, at the beginning of this and the ability to synchronize the war fighting functions. But when you're able to put dismounts on the ground with added capabilities such as mobile protective firepower, or you have uh, attack aviation coverage overhead, or you have the ability to call precision munitions, things like that. The, the bottom line is that, that is a that is a level of expertise that we've demonstrated, uh, or at least I've experienced personally during the during the uh, coin era uh, during deployment that you know we don't see units do too often out here. Um, we simply hand it over to the dismounts and wish them the best of luck, which is not necessarily a recipe for success. The success of our army has always been the ability to take multiple capabilities and combine them to solve complex problems. And I think that would be something that would benefit units moving forward. You know, John, all the rotations, you know, they tend to bleed together once you've done a few. But uh, looking back and thinking after I, after I spoke, some of the best units we've seen come through here, once the engineers conduct that breach, they don't just, their job's not over. So once the infantry get in and out of the city, the best units we've seen pull those 113s forward, establish base of fires in those alleys or down those main streets with their 50 cals. And we've seen strikers, which are designed to operate in the urban environment, get in and around and, and allow those dismounts to move freely in and around the city. This is fascinating. And probably kind of a focus of my current research on, you know, knowing what success looks like in some of these environments. And we, and like Colonel Simmering says, we do know what success looks for it. And we do know what becomes some of the decisive um, capabilities that have to be get brought to bear based on the complexity of this environment, whether it's VBIDs, houseborne IEDs. And if you don't have mobile protective firepower with you, um, how much that changes. But also I, I was actually surprised to hear you say that you don't see as much. And I, I fully get that it is kind of this higher level of, you know, you have to have the reps to kind of understand or, um, be replicating something historical to show that how much the artillery, your mortars and precision guided munitions, whether it's hellfires come into play in a type of operation like this, because there isn't a historical battle that I can think of. And I've studied a lot of them where those things don't become almost primary capabilities. Um, not many people know in the battle of Mosul that the U S military fired so many hellfire missiles that they ran out of 
the stockpile and had to request more to basically be made um, because of how much precision guided munitions comes into play, especially in dense populated urban terrain. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Rajesh or the National Training Center is actually one of the few large scale urban training sites since I've been to so many of them that allow mechanized vehicles within the urban terrain. And I know that all the urban spaces at National Training Center and it is kind of the training center where most of the mechanized forces, not, not all of them, um, and we send them to, to all the training centers, but will be. Do you see that as a kind of a higher level of training that needs to be crafted more at home station training? That that ability to work with your mounted and dismounted, utilizing your mobile, mobile protective firepower in urban operations very specifically? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first on that and then turn it over to Drew, I mean, and uh, Neil here. But the bottom line is, you know, we have the ability to train combined arms at home station is absolutely critical. A, a, an infantry platoon or a tank platoon by itself can only do so much. Or, you know, an artillery platoon by itself can only do too, so much. But when you're able to put them together and have a leader at the lowest level understand how to utilize and employ them, you can you can solve some truly complex problems and our our training strategy as a force lends to that if commanders are creative enough to incorporate it as you go along your home station training program too many times we get locked into training the tanks by themselves or training the infantrymen by themselves and we don't look at training units as teams for when they come out here and quite honestly what they'll have to perform on the ground Hey, John, this is uh, Drew here, um, specifically um, thinking about how you will fight with vehicles and what those vehicles are for, I think is something that um, it, leaders tend to um, maybe just not envision as deeply as they could because they end up going to the range. And if we if we do like the like Colonel Simmering is saying, that if we integrated the squad level and, and, and platoon level and company level and we and we we use those those vehicles. Um, we do it on the range and we, and we say, this is where the vehicle is going to drive. This is where it's going to shoot from. And then the infantry are going to go forward and then we're, and then that's it. And they've, 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 they've met their requirement and, and everybody was safe and we're trained. Uh, but what that leaves uh, on the table really is, um, is how you're going to move those vehicles and fight them in a dynamic fight. And so what the great thing about something, an objective like Razish is that it presents challenges and it presents the enemy in different ways from different heights and different angles and, and a different strengths so that it challenges leaders to say, to, to understand that the vehicle is a mobile, uh, platform uh, to fire from. And some of, you know, with, with whether it's protected or not as protected with the, with the striker and I've grown up in strikers a good bit. And so I think it's a misnomer, or I think it's a really a fallacy to think of specifically the striker as a truck. I don't think I don't think we should call it that, and it, it's more than that. It is a it is a firepower platform. It's a support by fire. It's a it's a casivac vehicle. It's a mission command platform. It is cover. Uh, it can be concealment if you deploy the smoke on it. Uh, there, it can be anti tank if it's an MGS or ATGM or has a javelin on it. And so there are a number of these other ways to integrate it. And if we don't consider, think about, and then train through LPDs and through really visualization, how we're going to fight with those, then uh, we get to a fight like Rizish and we're just really just overwhelmed and end up underutilizing the vehicles. You know, I think points, I just say that, you know, you see it once or twice or three times out here and it becomes a trend. And so we try to engage the, the rotational units early on in LTP to get them in the mindset of thinking of how they're going to incorporate their dismounts and the vehicle. So it's not just a mode of transportation. Because like I said, those great units don't just drop their sort you know, their soldiers off to the foothold and stay there. They continue to maneuver throughout the city adjacent to those dismounts to provide those support by fire. Because, oh, by the way, it's not just a dismounted platoon they're fighting. You know, there's several BMPs in and around the city. And generally those dismounts aren't carrying enough weaponry to, to attack and destroy those, those assets. And that's where those uh, mobile detector firepower platforms can come into play. Yes, sir. Uh, that's, this, that's amazing and i know that it's not an easy that's why this is the one of the most complex environments to train for now for urban train to be classified urban train it has to have three things it has to have the physical kind of buildings and on man-made you know man-made structures it has to have a population and it has to have infrastructure how does this operation specifically bring forward the kind of laws of armed conflict 
rules of engagement complexities when you're conducting urban operations when there are protected populations and protected sites? So I'll go first on that. So, you know, the bottom line is there are designated, and, and Drew hit on it earlier, the unit has the ability to study, you know, this stuff well ahead of time. And where there's particular government buildings, there's particular critical infrastructure they have to look at. But when we look at the, the ability to engage, if, for example, if an enemy happens to be occupying that structure, the ability to engage, one thing that's just, I, I think we should keep in mind is that we're doing it from the, from the scenario where we're in a large-scale conflict with a near-peer threat. We're not conducting it in a coin-type environment um, where, quite honestly, the aversion to risk may be more because, you know, the bottom line is it, it is in order to get past this urban terrain and get on to the next piece of urban terrain and get to the final objective of where we're going, you know, the bottom line is we're going to have to make some hard calls along the way. So that's introduced as a, as a, com, as a complexity in the scenario, um, but the restrictions on it are probably a little bit less than what we've seen in, the, in recent conflicts. Yes, sir. I think that's a really important thing that you and I discussed there is as a profession, as a, as a military, are we, are some generation, I don't know how to word that right, um, but is there a risk aversion being carried forward from leaders who may have experienced a different type of combat? And when you're asking them to do this operation and giving them all the the rules of engagement and criteria, are they self-imposing restrictions and higher levels of, or lower levels of risk as, acceptance in their approach to the problem? I think you know, what's, what's really fascinating to me is we do see different units impose you know, restrictions on themselves. Uh, it's sort of exactly like you're saying. And a lot of it has to do with that leader's prior experience and his ability to understand that that's not necessarily the same environment that he's operating in now. Um, so when you, when you look at it, I still think we're, we're kind of uneven across the force when we come to envisioning large-scale combat operations, whether you're t- talking about the, the platoon leader who may have arrived at the unit in the last six months, or you're talking about the brigade commander who has years of experience, it's interpreted different ways across the force. We try and teach it pretty evenly here at the National Training Center, but it is something that that we're still getting used to, I think. You know, you had something? Yeah, so in conversation with, you know, people on the team with Drew just yesterday, so there's a couple of ways to look at this, and you mentioned the word risk, and so I think one thing we need to add on to that is prudent. So the the prudent risk that's accepted down at that squad leader level, because when it breaks down to Razish, that's really the lowest level that we're controlling the fight at. And so does that squad leader know the decisions that he can or can't make, or is does he have the discipline initiative to even make them? You know, say we're taking fire from a mosque, you know, we've identified there's an imminent threat and it's coming from a protected site, but it's an imminent threat and it's, you know, it's a threat against you. You do have the ability in a decisive action environment to, to target that threat and reduce it uh, to protect yourself, protect your squad, protect your company and your battalion writ large. And I think what we see here as a trend is there's a coin mindset. We've got a lot of commanders out there that are still looking at, you know, collateral damage estimates when we're getting in and around the city of Razish itself proper, you know, and, and in Mosul, you just talked about, we, we expended all the Hellfire missiles we had on hand and had to fabricate more. What we see when units get in and around Razish, so there's a, a tendency to to back off of the lethality once we get in there. And it generally turns over to, you know, the dismounted infantrymen on the ground. We have the capability, the units have the capability when they come through here for per, even precision guided munitions, yet fail to incorporate those when the, when they attack in the city of Razish. And I, I still think they're in that, that risk adverse mindset when they're in and around the city. I think the best units we've seen come through here are not risk adverse and they're utilizing all of the systems they have to bear to reduce the threat to get after their mission, which is to secure Razish. You know, it's it's not at all costs, but at the same time, we're, we're securing it appropriately with the appropriate measures based on the threat that we're seeing in the city. Yes, sir. So I, I recently wrote a piece on why urban warfare is the hardest, and I stick to my guns on that. All warfare is hard, and, and you could argue that all environments are complex, whether it's the jungle, the high desert, or 
I mean, you, you name it, high altitude mountain warfare. But the reason urban warfare is so hard because you it is this this ability and skill that it takes to be as lethal as possible under the laws of armed conflict, but not under self-imposed constraints on, I want urban warfare to be a huge focus because of if we aren't, we don't have the ability to, to rapidly destroy enemy forces without breaching into unacceptable political risk, which is an aspect that gets talked about a, a lot on my show. I mean, if you're, you, the cost is too much to accomplish the mission, then it, the military hasn't given the, the right option. But to be as the best trained military that can lethally eliminate the enemy within a complex environment without an, un, an unacceptable amount of collateral damage or political instability, that's why this is the hardest environment. So the lessons you learned and you spoke of out of the Mosul fight with the expended hellfires, you know, we have a tendency here at the National Training Center, the units, instead of expending more assets that are non-human in nature, we're going to throw another company at it, or we're going to throw another battalion at the problem, actual soldiers versus echeloning to those hellfires, echeloning to our fires. And so, you know, if we could recommend going forward to home station training as units to incorporate that kind of mindset uh, as they plan to come here and not just fight necessarily in Razish itself, but in and around the battle space the National Training Center has to offer. And John, this is Drew here. I'll offer a perspective too that we need to consider, which is I'll agree with what you said about it being uh, the hardest. One of the things that makes it difficult is this population, right? It's a population center. And so it's a condensed area of people and non-combatants and attitudes and influences. And so while I think we learned some incredible lessons over the last 15 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan about how to influence populations and how to conduct warfare in and around them, we're moving toward understanding large-scale combat operations and then testing it in this decisive action training environment down here. But we can't forget about those populations. We can't forget that where the strategic victory lies. And for a battalion, that may be different than what the Corps is looking at. I'll give you an example. A squadron as part of a regimental fight attacked into Razish several months ago and had a very successful attack. They had shaped the conditions around Razish. They seized key terrain around it, which doesn't happen very often. And they got into the city and, and so executed their attack. So that night, the enemy conducted a night attack to infiltrate back into the city to try to claim some keep terrain and, and make a statement. Really, it was kind of a suicide mission because they only had a few fighters. But really, what was their intent? Their intent was to, to get inside and to look for a strategic victory. And what they ended up doing was seizing control of a portion of the provincial compound. And they got inside and they, they got onto the roof. It was only two fighters left out of the 10 that started the attack. The unit ended up killing those those enemy soldiers and, and stopping the attack, right? Which is a tactical victory. That's great. But the strategic failure comes in the morning when on YouTube, the population sees enemy fighters back on the rooftop of the provincial capital. So the headline there in the information environment is enemy fighters reclaim Razish, right? And so the unit may have thought, oh yeah, we beat off this attack last night. However, the enemy had a victory in the information environment and now the RTU has got to fight back against that narrative. And so you really have to ask yourself, given the population center, given you know the terrain and the other considerations in the urban environment, where does the victory lie and, and what you're able to absorb? Because the more buildings you destroy, the more you will have to speak to that and rebuild and to patch that with the population later on. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that's why I really wanted to do this show was to discuss how hard, not only how important it is that this operation be a continuing thing that our military trains, but how hard it is to replicate it. If you look at every historical battle in the last, let's say 10 years, or you can go back to World War II, how much combined arms this requires, the number of artillery rounds, you name it. There's so many rounds fired in the Battle of Raqqa that it was more than the entire U.S. Marine Corps fired in Operation Iraqi Freedom in a single operation. How hard it is to replicate the actual combined arms capabilities it requires based on the feedback that you will get once you enter this environment and try to accomplish the mission of clearing it of enemy personnel, whether they're in the subterranean environment, which I know Regis has a, an amazing subterranean environment, or whether they're strong pointed in a ironclad building like the prison, what it physically takes 
to win in that environment. So I think that brings me to my last question. You guys have more expertise than anyone on the status of training, not only resources available, but training, let's say, readiness levels that units are coming in this specific collective task. If you could make a change to Regis today, what would it be? Would it be continuing the build-out plan of it to make it even more complex? Would it be adding more battle effects so you could replicate some of the of these requirements that we've been talking about? Adding more people? Like From your perspective, what would you change? So I think General Milley really pushed this when he was the chief of staff. And, and I know that the folks at Army Futures Command are continuing to look at it as they develop multi-domain operations. But when we look at the training capabilities we have here, they're great. But one of the things when we look at more complicated areas, such as subways and what we might see in terms of skyscrapers in major populated areas, if we had to go into a large capital city, for example, of a nation that we were going up against, the level of complexity that we would encounter there would probably be on a scale that we have not been able to replicate here at the National Training Center. I think we do a phenomenal job with what we have here in terms of replicating the complexity of the environment. But if you just look at the urban areas out there throughout the world, we're really just sort of dipping in our toe in the water. And I, I know that the Army wants to get after that. It's a matter of resourcing. It's a matter, matter of future choices for senior leaders. And I know that they're all trying to wrestle with that as we go forward. Would you want to spend more time in a battle like this, sir? I think anytime you tell any leader in the United States Army you have more time, that they will take it. Anything we can do to train forces better, but as with every CTC rotation here, and it's not just here, it's a matter of home station training, it comes down to a balance of risk and requirements. And you're trying to understand where you're going to accept risk, where you're not. And quite honestly, we sort of looked at urban operations here at the National Training Center and so said, hey, it's not something that we can ignore anymore. But of course, if you gave us more time, we would put more time into it. So, John, this is Neil. So there, there's risk to that. So you talked about the subterranean features in the city of Rizish itself. And I think both you and I know if if that was in play, that Rizish would probably be a 72 to 96 hour operation just for that piece alone. Uh, and the construct of the exercises as they are now with the 14-day requirement and getting them through force-on-force and then pushing them through force-on-force under a lot of fire conditions, it, we would, I think we would focus on certain problems, just focusing on resistance and the subterranean aspect, not getting after the maneuver piece that, that some units struggle with as they come through here over expansive terrain. And, and there's, there's a lot of lessons that units learn out here. Uh, one of them is in the city of Rizish, uh, but there is many more lessons that I think that we would lose if we spent more time in the city itself. And John, I'll, I'll close it out here with a comment on, on Rizish there. You know, one thing that's tough to replicate is what you mentioned, which is the population, right? Is the day in and day out activity that goes on. So when we look across the central corridor above Razish the morning of the fight and we see uh, a couple white light vehicles driving by and and that that's a fraction, I mean just a minuscule fraction of what would what might be on the battlefield in a, in a large scale combat operations. I mean we just think about the think about your average highway over, you know, overpass, uh, you know, running through an objective. What do you do with that? You know, what do you do with uh, a, 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 you know, a bomb goes off in the street and now you have a traffic jam. I mean, how do you, how, and the population is spilling out into your objective area. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you do white lights at, uh, at, at night with nods? And I mean, those are things that we can show a little bit of a glimpse of here just based on the, the, the numbers and they get some idea of it. But I think if, if we could flood a, a unit to really give them the experience of, um, that, uh, the, the population overflowing into their military operations, I think that would uh, be a key takeaway. Well, I'm going to go on the record, just personally, that I would want to see the U.S. Army build a urban combat training center. So much like the National Training Center was developed and the reason it was developed on the high desert and the amount of maneuver space, I'd want to see an urban combat training center where you're spending 14 days just doing exactly what you discussed, Colonel Sedman, being immersed in the complexity of their environment, not, you know, approaching the urban terrain from the outside, but living in it and, you know, projecting power forward for an operation like that. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate your time. Hey, 
John. Just thank you for the opportunity. You know, anything that we can do to sort of show what our Army's doing here and what we're trying to prepare for into the future. I think it's just a fabulous opportunity. Thank you for what you're doing in terms of highlighting the complexity of urban operations. It's something that moving forward, we're just going to have to deal with. Really appreciate you having the team on here. It's, it's been great. So thank you very much. Thank you, sir.